Okay, so welcome to ELT in Chile, podcast about teaching English in Chile and also, you know, many different parts, parts of the world. In this space, I talk to teachers, teacher trainers, and experts who would like to share their experiences and expertise regarding English language teaching, not only in Chile, but also around the world. Here we, you know, we talk about linguistics, language, language learning, how people experience language, you know. And in this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Adolfo Garcia. Adolfo holds a PhD in language sciences and specializes in the neuroscience of language and communication. This is going to be long because Adolfo has done many things. He serves as the director of the Cognitive Neuroscience Center, Universidad de San Andres, Argentina, senior Atlantic fellow at the Global Brain Health Institute, University of California, San Francisco, associate researcher at Universidad Santiago de Chile, where we are colleagues, and adjunct researcher at the National Scientific and Technical Research Council in Argentina, personnel of the Translation Research Empiricism Cognition Trek. Network and honorary member of the Center of Cognitive Neuroscience at the La Laguna University, Spain. And finally, high-level talent appointed by the Ministry of Science and Technology of China. Moreover, he's the founder of Include, a global network for cross-linguistic research on brain health and the creator of the app Toolkit to Examine Lifelike Language. That's, you know, uh, it's called TEL. From 2021 to 2020. Uh, 22. He serves as the Director of Language Science at Redden Lab, Australia. He has received training in Cognitive Neuroscience, Translation, and Foreign Language Teaching, alongside postdoctoral studies at the Institute of Cognitive Neurology in Argentina, and research studies at New York University and Rice University in the U.S. His teaching career includes graduate and postgraduate courses in Argentina, Chile, Colombia, the United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, and China. He has more than 200 publications, including books, chapters, papers, and leading journals, mainly focused on neurolinguistics and bilingualism. He has offered more than 220 presentations and talks at international academic meetings and scientific science dissemination events, including in TechX Talk with a live audience of 12,000 people, which is something that maybe you can mention. Of course, we can include a link to that. So thank you, Adolfo, for accepting my invitation to the podcast. And of course, I have many questions for you. So let's get started. How are you, Adolfo? Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you very much for this invitation. It's uh, it's great to wrap up the year with uh, with this opportunity to share some views and ideas. So thank you. Yeah. So Alfa, I mean, I know that I, I read your you know resume. Of course, you have many more publications and many more things. So I tried to summarize that. But I know that you're a certified translator, translator and English teacher. So how did you become interested, you know, and involved in language in, in general? Can you tell me about this journey a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, first of all, I'm not a certified translator. I hold uh, a degree in technical okay. scientific translation. Sci translation, which is not exactly the same thing. In Argentina, there's actually, uh, 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 it's a collegiate profession. So you actually have certified translators who uh, can actually attest to the, uh, um, to the, if you want the lawfulness of the documents that are translated. So okay. that's not me. Nothing that invo involves lawfulness falls okay. within my purview, basically. <laughs> okay. Um, but um, yeah, so I don't know. It's, uh, you know, those questions, you know, how do you first become interested in something? They're so tricky because we are often quite blind to how these things happen. And, and in general, or at least in my case, uh, there was a combination of chance and and deliberate search, uh, and, uh, and also you know when 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 one is uh, faced with these retrospective questions, you know we we are so good at coming up with coherent stories, you know that make everything uh, look as if as if they made sense, right? So uh, this is just a little 
uh, disclaimer that I may be falling prey to some of these biases, but um, I guess I've always had a thing for language, uh, for uh, language-based humor, punning, uh, twisting around the possibilities of grammar and, and, and the lexicon, just uh, even going back to uh, primary school and high school, um, I, I even, I still have this notebook where I would write all sorts of stupid jokes and they were all mainly based on, 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 on linguistic tricks and maneuvers, if you will. Uh, then at some point, um, I was, uh, uh, I, I faced the need to say, hey, you need to make a living, right? And uh, uh, my main fascination in life is music. And I was uh, actually um, uh, working and studying to become a professional musician. But I realized that uh, because of the kind of music that I was into, I was going to find it difficult to indulge in certain luxuries, such as eating, for example. <laughs> so I said, okay, why don't, why don't I try to make a living out of things that I feel I have something of a knack for? And language was one of those things. So I signed up for this uh, technical and scientific tech, uh, translation program. Uh, and I realized that there was something called linguistics, and that there were such people as linguists, very obscure folks who devoted their lives to uh, studying language and coming up with ideas about language. And what do you know, they actually got to travel around the world to talk about language. And I said, okay, now that sounds like an interesting way of uh, you know, spending your time here on Earth. So I started, I started studying linguistics pretty much on my, on my own, in addition to the things that I was doing on, on these courses. And then little by little, I uh, started building up a career around that until the point where I realized that uh, I needed to uh, learn about the brain if I were to understand language in, in, in terms that I was comfortable with and, and that really resonated with me. Um, so I started studying cognitive neuroscience. This is, of course, the very, very uh, blurb-like uh, response to that question, but uh, that was it. Yeah, you know, there is usually something, I mean, for many people has been music, for some people has been, you know, video games, for some people has been, you know, talking to somebody and then realizing that they speak another language that they cannot understand. So there is something, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny to hear, let's say, the the how people it's usually chance you know or like life or like you said trying to make a living but also yeah the word like let's say linguistics it's a pretty you know it's like an attractive word you're like oh you would like to know more about it then you would like to see what these people do you know and then i know that well you you taught uh in high school right in i i, I did i did um uh, i my my first, I mean, other than private lessons, my first formal teaching experience was I was a substitute teacher for one, uh, for half of a semester in for third graders, and uh, I, I have empirical evidence that I have, that I am the very worst third grade teacher to have ever existed. I was actually teaching English, and it, it, it was it was a disaster. I remember looking at other. Uh, professional third grade teachers around me and uh, my god I mean that was uh, I, I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to those students that had to sit in a class with me after that I did one year of uh, teaching in high school it was 
uh, the senior year for these uh, high schoolers. Um, and it was a very uh, weird experience, uh, basically because I was only maybe three years older than they were. And uh, I felt closer to them generationally in terms of interests than the, uh, distanced from them in terms of the uh, teacher-student relationship and the, uh, I, I don't know, apparent asymmetry that needs to be part at least of some of those relations. Um, I guess the first summary of what I did there was I was teaching English. Uh, yes, um, but uh, also many of those students, they just didn't care at all about English. And uh, I was not about to uh, play the sergeant role. So um, to those who wanted to learn English, we had our English lessons. But for those who didn't, I came up with a sort of parallel curriculum where I taught them about the history and the organization of heavy metal, uh, which is one of my fascinations. And then a few years later, I remember this movie School of Rock yeah. came out. Yeah. But I did it before. <laughs> Nobody knows, but I did it before. <laughs> so probably, yeah, it was it was based, you know, it was based on your life experience. <laughs> and and Alolfo, how did you move from or how do you go from teaching to, you know, what you're doing now to like neurolinguistics and you know, studying the brain? Yes. Um so uh Right after I, I, I learned about linguistics and uh, I, I sort of had the, 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 the realization that that was going to be sort of a, a path for me to follow, um, I, um, I started studying uh, linguistics. Uh, I signed up for the um, EFL teaching course program. Actually, not so much because that was um, an end to me, uh, but actually because it was more of a means to be able to access uh, research uh, grants um, and, and, and fellowships and things like that. So as to start building a career around science. Uh, and uh, I started doing that based on classical approaches to linguistics and translation studies, which was one of the things that I started off with. Um, and um, I started writing papers, even when I was an undergrad student, and some of those papers were published. Um, and um, folks at, uh, at New York University, NYU, uh, they reached out to me. There was this uh, um, transdisciplinary research group that was just building up, involving neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, neurologists, neurosurgeons. And uh, they were interested in language, language assessments, language therapy. Um, and they needed someone with a background in linguistics, bilingualism, and translation because they had these um, quite abundant bilingual populations in New York, uh, you know, uh, second generation uh, immigrants or things like that, heritage speakers of, uh, of Spanish. Um, and so they contacted me and um, I, I, I in my first trip to work with them, uh, I had this sort of epiphany when I was actually witness uh, to this direct brain stimulation session. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's a person wide awake, but uh, his scalp was removed. And uh, you can apply electrical shocks 
uh, on certain parts of the of the cortex, yeah. and you can see whether those electrical um, uh, shocks actually uh, interfere with certain cognitive functions. The one that they were interested in was language. So this very uh, unique thing happened. I mean, I, I have never seen anything like this before. So there's this bilingual man around 80 years old, uh, scalp removed, brain out there in the open, and they would show him pictures. And they would ask the, the person to name the picture in both Spanish and English, right? So they, they show him a picture of a cup and they apply a little, a little electrical shock somewhere and uh, on the brain and he goes, vaso uh, cup, all right. Then they move the electrode you know, stimulation is applied somewhere else. They show him the picture of a cat. So he goes, gato, cat. All right. You know, now they move the electrode somewhere else. They apply uh, simulation and um, they show him the picture of a car. And the guy goes, auto. Mm. So what happened there? That was the very first time that I learned. And it was not encyclopedic learning. It was just right there first-hand experiential learning, hey, language has such organization in the human brain that some particular circuits may be distinctly involved in processing words from your second language, but not your first language. Your first language. And that was just a game changer for me. And then you saw you had like this sort of epiphany. You said like, oh, that's something I would like to know more of. You know, that's something you wanted to study. Exactly. At that point, it was like very clear. I mean, there was this vague notion I had about something called neurolinguistics yeah. uh, and, 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 and neuroscience. And I said, okay, that's it. Uh, <laughs> so I started from scratch, I mean, um, basically. And it was a very, very intense period of just very compulsive uh, and disorganized reading and studying on my, on my part. Uh, and, and I wrote my first paper in neurolinguistics based on uh, a theory from uh, one of my early mentors, uh, Professor Sidney Lamb, um, who was uh, uh, is the, the creator of a stratificational grammar and who uh, actually founded the linguistics department at Yale University. And um, so he was working at Rice University at the time, and I sent him this paper alongside a, a, a translation into Spanish uh, of a chapter from his uh, uh, most well-known book. And he got back to me and he said, hey, this is quite good. We should get this paper published. Uh, and um, I'm gonna have the translated chapter read by uh, a colleague of mine who's proficient in Spanish. But um, in the meantime, why don't you, would you like to come work with me for a while? Uh, I was an undergrad student. I had no money. Of course, I said yes. <laughs> I spent absolutely the entirety of my savings just uh, to be able to spend three months there in Houston uh, doing this PhD uh, course with him. And it was a, a fantastic experience. And that was just the, um, everything was both downhill in terms of the decision-making process as to what <laughs> I was going to do, but uphill in terms of the challenges that it involved. Yeah, absolutely. And, and probably, you know, when, when you talk, let's say to, to people, I know that you specialize in bilingualism and neurolinguistics. How do you, how do you explain, let's say, what do you do to somebody who doesn't know so much about it? 
because it's kind of funny when we say, yeah, most people think that we just like teach English and we teach like grammar and things like that, but we do much more than that. How do you explain, let's say, what do you do, Alfo? I, I don't usually explain what I uh, what I do because nobody cares to ask me. So th this is a very very this is a first timer for me, Consolis. Thank you. What 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 a, what a, what a, what an unusual circumstance to find myself in. Um, so what I do is uh, basically everything that I do revolves around this question. Um, right now we are talking, yes. and uh, you are capable of. Uh, understanding what I'm saying, or at least coming up with an idea of what it is that I may be trying to convey. Um, and also you're capable of uh, somehow moving your mouth and producing fluctuations in the air that then lead to linguistic messages, right? Yeah. All right. Um, do we believe that the brain has something to do with that? Or, 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 is, or is this something that happens magically uh, out of its own accord or without relying on the brain? I think we would all agree that the brain probably plays a major part in it. All right, that's very good, but that's very vague. So what is that role? How is it that the brain um, intervenes in the processes that are involved in language production, comprehension, acquisition, learning, uh, and also how does language become dysfunctional uh, upon sustaining brain damage? And uh, more particularly, all of these things intersect with bilingualism, so all of these questions then have sort of a, um, a second uh, layer to them, which is how does a single brain handle uh, comprehension of input in two different languages or more? How does the brain uh, manage to uh, suppress one language in the case of a bilingual when that person is trying to restrict uh, her or his communication to only the other language. Uh, how are languages connected in the brain? What is the magical neural circuitry by which you're able to perceive, listen to, read input in one language, and then convert whatever um, interpretation, rendition, or summary of, those, of that information you came up with into another language? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's basically what I try to do. And okay. to do this, what we do is we use the whole gamut, the whole um, repertoire of tools of cognitive neuroscience. So anything from measuring how fast or slow people respond to certain stimuli using computer programs to measuring electrical brain activity patterns as, as people are, are doing these things to measuring how thick or uh, their, uh, the walls of their brains are, in a way, if you want to call them that, right? How how dense gray matter is accumulating in different brain regions or not, how different brain areas uh, um, become active and inactive, or how intensely they couple or how they decouple as we are doing whatever it is that we are doing in terms of language and bilingual processing in general. So that would be it. But the, the one-liner would be, what I do is I try to understand how the brain plays a role in everything that characterizes bilingual communication. And that's very, I mean, interesting. I mean, there are so many things that probably that you've 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 learned, you know, regarding uh, language learning and their brain. Besides, you know that you know that epiphany that when you saw you know this person being, you know, like I don't know, 
there were some experiments being carried out. What's something that's been, let's say, very, very fascinating or surprising for you, let's say, when you now that you've been studying the brain, what's something that you would say is like, oh, this is something that's fascinating? All right. Yeah. Many things. Uh, the, 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 maybe one of the most engaging things uh, is actually the one that, that sort of prompted my, uh, what, what's been my main line of work so far which has to do with the following. Let me, let, let me frame it in the guise of a question, if I may. Mm -hmm. So um, right now we're talking, Jose Luis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm producing what you might call words mm -hmm. in one way or another. Let's not get into philosophical discussions about that. Um, and you're understanding what I'm saying, right? I mean, I can see you nodding and, you know, this conversation is flowing. Um, what do you, how do you think you understand what I'm telling you? What happens in your head? If you had to give me your explanation. If I tell you, for example, this, Lionel Messi uh, kicked the ball and scored the best goal in the World Cup. What do you think is happening in your head for you to understand what I just said? I mean, I, I just like, I, like your words have been like triggering some images, you know, in, in, in my, like all this knowledge I have, of, for example, Lionel Messi, I, I'm a football fan. So it's like when you say kicked, I can see the image of like kicking like very quickly. And then like a ball, you know, and also, and I, I see some Argentinian things like Medias Lunas, you know, so I started seeing images are coming to, to my mind, you know, like quickly, very quickly, like triggers. Like You see these images and, uh, and we have that feeling. And sometimes, you know, we feel like there's a, there's a theater where you see yeah. things, right? Uh, and oftentimes uh, the lexicon and, and, and word, word meanings are described in, in different theories as sort of, self-contained entities if you, mm -hmm. if you take a look at the uh, i don't know if you remember um the the movie inside out yeah. right i mean memory is depicted as a collection of shelves with balls that contain memories like others, right? yes right uh and sometimes you know um even quite popular mainstream theoretical models of the lexicon they're not much different from that mm -hmm. and sometimes you get the feeling that oh a word sort of uh primes one of these dictionary entries, one of these balls, and I get all, all these imagery in my head. Um, and one of the things that I, that I learned uh, while working in neuroscience and, and that I do a lot of research in now is the following. When you move your leg, if, if you were to kick a ball, Jose, when you run, when you walk, the fact that you're able to physically initiate that movement, control that movement, monitor that physical motion of your legs has to do with a certain uh, uh, with certain circuitry that we that we can very broadly call uh, motor networks in your brain. And what is fascinating to me is this: when you listen to me say Lionel Messi kicked the ball, that word "kick" and that 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 comprehension that you can derive from it. That happens partly because you have this activation of this very same circuits that enable you to move your legs. My legs. And, uh, and, you know, there's evidence that shows that when you have words that are related to olfaction, that convey like strong uh, senses of smell, like vanilla or cinnamon, things like that, your olfactory brain circuits light up. The light up. When you when when someone mentions a part of your face, right, 
the very, uh, I don't know, words like nose or cheeks or mouth or things like that, you have a differential response in your brain of the same circuits that enable you to perceptually identify faces, right? So language, we come to realize, is sort of a, of, a, of, of a little hijacking trick that we have to reach into the, uh, the, the core of non-linguistic mechanisms in, in, in our experience. Language is sort of a shorthand that we have to implant or reactivate, if you will, experiences, sensory, motor, and situated experiences with the world. And that is just fascinating because it shows you that language is this uh, quite complex phenomenon, which is both cultural uh, and biological, and that in a way is one of the key uh, interfaces that we have between our phenomenological experience and the biological grounding that, that our organism uh, endows it with. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds, let's say, fascinating, of course, like trying to see how the brain works. Let's say connected to, to language and have some questions, let's say, pre prepared for that. Uh, but I would like to talk about your teaching a little bit. Let's say when you when you teach, let's say, probably if students, let's say, sign up for a course that has, you know, a specific name. What, let's say, what do students expect going to your lectures or to your courses? Like, do do they say like, okay, I'm here to learn or they know nothing, or some people know, let's say, know a lot about, let's say, your 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 lectures or courses. Uh, I guess that 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 varies a lot. Um, so when I teach um, uh, new, the cognitive neuroscience of language, uh, usually at the undergraduate level, um, uh, students come with uh, little to no background at all. Mm. Um, when I'm doing this at a postgraduate level then usually the, the scenario is different. Even if people have no direct background in neuro-linguistics, usually at the postgraduate level, you have people who come with a medical background or maybe who've, uh, who even have a master's in neuropsychology at large or things like that. So uh, the first thing I, I, I would say is that I, I have only very few one-size-fits-all uh, resources in my teaching uh, tricks. Uh, uh, and um, and then most of the things they are sort of ad hoc adaptations to the um, to, to to the actual class that I'm facing. Um, I, I also teach other things. Um, for instance, I mean, lately I've been doing these courses on academic and scientific writing, uh, and uh, that's an entirely different thing. It's a yeah. more hands-on workshop type. Uh, uh, teaching and, 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 and learning experience. Um, so it, it, it really changes a lot. I guess uh, if I were to point out to a couple of things that sort of cut across these different uh, teaching settings that I find myself in are the following. First of all, uh, I like to have no, no room for improvisation in the way in which the, the classes are structured. Uh -huh. So from day one, I've laid out everything that we're going to do in the entire program uh, to the level of how we're going to be using the first hour of this class, the second hour of this class. That works for me. But this sort of comes um, uh, with this um, uh, 
contrast to the way in which I approach what I do in that hour, which is as improvised as I can. Mm -hmm. So I have the roadmap of what I'm going to do, but then within that 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 one hour in which I know I'm going to be addressing topic A, uh, it's pretty much free flow for me. Um, basically, because I've learned that about myself, I am less bad at teaching when I do it that way than when I try to have a completely pre-rehearsed um, uh, lesson. Yeah. Um, humor is fundamental. Um, it, it not just because of the social dynamic and and sort of uh, uh, co-constructive atmosphere that you can create uh, interpersonally with it but also because it's a very good anchorage for new information. We tend to remember things that have been framed within a humor situation better than those that were presented uh, in a, let's say, uh, emotionally more neutral yeah. context. Yeah. Of course, the same could be true about very negative emotions. Uh, the things that happen to us that we go through when we are uh, under uh, lots of stress, or extreme fear, you will never forget those, you know, those stick with you. But then again, I realize that it's very counterproductive to try to scare people away when you are yeah. uh, in a lesson. So humor tends to be the weapon of choice. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I am very, very, uh, uh, I have major disbelief about the value of exams mm -hmm. uh, in general. Uh, I can see some very small utility uh, in them, but I think that they are uh, overvalued uh, in curricular design in general, and uh, they tend they, they tend to be sort of the gatekeepers of uh, how students fare when they uh, complete a course. So I rely more on, on continuous assessment uh, than on on exams, and oftentimes. Uh, I just frame exams as a sort of a, a regulatory excuse that we need to comply with, but I try not to leave the bulk of the final score of student uh, be dictated by what happens in that snapshot exactly. of uh, of the, the 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 final test. And also, that's something that can be affected by so many factors. You know, like something negative or or something positive. You you can have a good day or a bad day, and that can ruin your entire semester, basically. Absolutely, and uh, just as you wouldn't judge uh, 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 Steve Vai or, or John Petrucci or any uh, fantastic prog metal guitarist by how they fared on one single night, yeah. but rather you know you wanna you know you judge how fantastic or not they are based on their entire career, their accumulation of live shows on different stages, night after night. Why should it be any different for? Yeah. Uh, or teaching, right? Uh, if you really want to think about what you are doing as something that's going to be uh, of actual uh, value, of actual ecological value in daily life, as opposed to uh, sort of a, a, a mere performance yeah. test. Absolutely. You know, uh, I think like two months ago, I was, you know, invited to give a talk in English and students had to interpret, you know, in real let's say in real time what i was saying and i was tired i imagine that the students were also like the, the interpreters were very let's say exhausted they did very well <laughs> you know but i would say that interpreting it's one of the most demanding cognitive tasks you know i usually see yeah it it looks as something that's quite simple when people are good at it 
you know, but I don't know, would you say that that's a very demanding task for your brain or, you know, what have you, let's say, researching or what goes through the brains of interpreters? I, I would. I would say it's a very demanding activity. Uh, interpreters would say it too. People who who've had no prior experience with interpreting and they uh, try to do it would attest to it as well. Uh, people who are training to become interpreters and they go through the first um, uh, instances of uh, in-booth practice will tell you it's just killer. And uh, there's research that actually attests to this. A few years back, this report was, re was released where they tried to rank the most stressful um, uh, professions in the world. And uh, simultaneous interpreting uh, was ranked third among mm -hmm. all professions. So, so if you want to know what the, the first two were, uh, number two was um, air controllers. So people mm -hmm. who must make sure that, uh, you know, two planes do not crash in the air, right? Uh, and number one was uh, skyscraper window cleaners. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> so, so, you know, cleaning windows on a 57th floor uh, out there in the open, two, keeping planes from crashing and having, I don't know, 700 people die at once, and then comes simultaneous interpreting. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why if you look at the ranking, probably, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, it's a very, it's a difficult, you know, uh, you know, job. And I don't know, have you ever studied that, let's say, in terms of what happens in, in the brain of interpreters? Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's, uh, I don't think we can call it an incipient line of research anymore, but neither can we call it a full-fledged research tradition. Uh -huh. At this point, uh, the literature probably has as many as uh, maybe 100 papers out there mm -hmm. uh, looking into the cognitive and neural particularities of um uh, people with expertise in simultaneous interpreters in interpreting relative to um, uh, other populations. Why do I put it like this? Because it's not only about studying professional uh, mm. interpreters, but also about studying students who are uh, uh, in the process of obtaining their uh, interpreting license. So yeah, basically what you do in this in this research is you have a group of people with uh, experience in simultaneous interpreting, and then a, a group of people who are uh, bilingual or multilingual, but who lack such an experience. The underlying question is, okay, so since simultaneous interpreting is such a cognitive, uh, cognitively demanding task, right? Um, will the sustained exercise of that very demanding task have an impact in the way in which you think, you process information, and even more so in the way in which your brain is physically structured and functionally organized? And the answer to all of these questions is yes. Um, so just to give you a couple of um, examples from the literature. If you, if I give you a, um, a few phone numbers right now, Jose Luis, right? Uh, I give you maybe my phone number with country code, area code, you know, all 14 digits on it. Uh, and, um, and you don't have your computer at hand. And neither do you have a pen or piece of paper. No. So you have to go downstairs where you have something that you can actually use to write it down. What are you going to be doing from now till you get to that point? 
Yeah, if I tell you that number. I'm going to be like trying to think of ways to, you know, like try to remember it or trying to maybe repeat it or, you know, or exactly. thinking about that. Exactly. So most likely, uh, most likely you're not going to be out there just saying it out loud. Most likely you're going to be sort of having this inner voice, you know, yeah. Re repeat that number. Okay. That's called phonological working memory, basically, uh, or short-term memory in this case. And uh, um, if you compare uh, the ability uh, and the capacity of uh, short-term memory retention in simultaneous interpreters yeah. versus uh, other bilingual or multilingual populations, they will be cheap. Yeah. They are better at it. Uh, if you measure how fast um, they are at finding the uh, equivalent or potential equivalent of a certain word in one language in the other, they will do it faster than you. Yeah. Uh, if you um, if you give them, for instance, tasks that require handling two streams of processing at the same time, such as recognizing certain sounds in the midst of certain visual shapes, you know, you have like two parallel task schemas going on, they will beat you. Yeah. And uh, the reason for this, but they will not beat you at everything. For instance, if you give them a word, a written word, and you ask them, okay, read it as fast as you can, they will not do it faster than you. Hmm. If you show them a picture and you tell them, name that picture as fast as you can, they will not do it faster than you. And when you think about this and you think about the interpreting task itself, interpreting is a task that requires highly developed working memory skills. You need to be able to retain in your, in your head Maybe for as, for as long as two to four or six seconds, something that was said as uh, you are saying it in the other language and the other person keeps talking. Yeah. Um, you need to find the translation equivalents of the source language uh, input uh, as fast as you can. Uh, you need to be able to keep two strings of two streams of processing um, highly efficiently. Uh, active in your head as you are producing in one language while at the same time you are comprehending in the other. Uh, but when you think about it, reading words fast is not something that's going to be conducive to better interpreting performance. Uh, and naming uh, visual objects that you see will, uh, will not be very supportive of this uh, expected outcome either. So what, if, what happens is that the practice of simultaneous interpreting at large ends up honing, mm. boosting, reinforcing the specific cognitive subdomains that are critically invoked, recruited during the performance of simultaneous interpreting. And when you take a look at the brain, you will see that many of the critical brain regions and networks and circuits that are involved in these domains, they are different. Sometimes you find that interpreters have less, not more, less um, gray matter density in some of the areas that are critical for this. And that is usually interpreted as a sign of efficiency. Efficiency, yeah. When you become good at something, you are able to maximize um, behavioral outcomes while minimizing the resources that are devoted to the task. Uh, so there are, and in our own research, we've seen that uh, there are specific uh, brain frequencies that are modulated differentially between interpreters and non-interpreters when they perform 
uh, interlinguistic tasks such as translation, but also when they engage in single language tasks such as single language production. Yeah. So it's um, it's quite interesting to see that um, the impact of sustained experience in simultaneous interpreting can impact both on linguistic and non-linguistic skills insofar as they are relevant to the interpreting task at large. So it's not like interpreting experience will have a widespread uh, uh, impact on the whole of your cognitive repertoire. And that, of course, if there is a cognitive effect, that is going to be accompanied by underlying changes in uh, either brain structure or function. And that is exactly what the literature has been revealing so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like I said, it's like a pretty demanding cognitive task. And like you said, you're trying to process language at the same time and like trying to find equivalent, you know, like while you're listening, taking some notes, you know, there are many tasks, let's say, happening at the same time. So that must be, let's say, your, that, that would be, let's say, your, your, your brain in like overdrive, you know, like your brain going like at its full capacity. It's, it's, I really like that metaphor. It is your brain in overdrive. And in fact, uh, it's not about, there's something about the cross linguistic nature of interpreting um, itself. Uh, in fact, if you compare the brain of interpreters when they are doing something that is very, very demanding also, which is shadowing. Yeah. So single language shadowing. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking in English now. And imagine that you have to say everything that I'm saying in English, yeah. but with a two second lag. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, this is similar to what happens in interpreting, except that you are lacking the cross-linguistic jumps, yeah. right? Okay, that is very hard. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but yeah. shadowing, single language shadowing, it's tremendously difficult. It now, is. when you compare the levels of activation of shadowing um, versus, in your brain versus um, spontaneous speech, you have much greater patterns of activation much more metabolic demands going on in different brain areas that are critical for both linguistic processing and cognitive control process. But here comes the interesting thing. When you compare actual simultaneous interpreting with shadowing, those um, uh, increases in, in brain activity becomes even more pronounced. Yeah. So yeah, it's not just about the challenging uh, nature of this delayed processing and this taxation of working memory, which is also part of shadowing, there's something that is particularly distinctly hard about doing that in a bilingual brain, jumping from one language to another. So yeah, I mean, that's why I would like to express my admiration for, well, of course, translators and interpreters, because those both, you know, tasks are pretty, you know, demanding, especially when you have to interpret and also translate because you have to, there are so many, you know, aspects of your brain that, you know, are functioning. And also, like you said, and also when you talk to other people trying to find a specific, you know, term or specific word, you know, and making decisions, you know, and saying, okay, this is the correct word for this context. Those are pretty demanding tasks, you know, they look simple they look very simple you know when you see people who are good at it you're like oh that looks very easy it's like have you ever tried that it's like no so you know because it must be it's very let's say taxing for your brain but the the the, the level of ease uh with which professionals can can perform these tasks is it, it really is worth of uh you know it, it's 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 admirable 
I mean, if you take a look at professional, uh, especially, you know, well-seasoned um, interpreters, you know, perform in major conference conferences in the booth. I mean, I have uh, friends and colleagues who do it and while they are interpreting, and it's just massive event. I mean, you know, with very highly technical terminology and people who speak very fast, they'll be doing it um, in, in the booth while they are painting, painting their nails, for instance. Uh, or while they are sorting, you know, cards <laughs> with different colors. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I, they, they do it because they really, I mean, this is so demanding that yeah. if you have to do it while actively making deliberate choices and mm -hmm. conscious processing, it becomes unfeasible. Uh, yeah. So it's only when you have a high level of, automiz uh, of automization yeah. that, you, that you can actually perform at the standards that are required in uh, conference yeah. interpreting or other professional settings. Absolutely. And Alofa, just like one, maybe uh, one of the last questions I have for you, you know, we've been seeing like many discussions and arguments and interviews, people talking about artificial intelligence, you know, in terms of language. I don't know if you've seen the case of the, I don't know, chat GPT, which produces, you know, enormous, you know, pretty academic, you can, you know, basically ask this chat any question and we'll try to, you know, uh, answer it. Do you think that this is going to have an effect? What I'm know? doing here is uh, basically, I just... Uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, everything that I'm doing now, Jose, is I, I just typed your questions on uh, chat GPT. I'm just reading out <laughs> what the software is telling me to say, yeah. And do you, but yeah, me too. I'm writing the questions, like, let's say, in the same way. It's like questions for Adolfo Garcia, and it gave me a list of, like, 20 questions. <laughs> and do you think this is going to have an effect on, like, language teaching and learning, you know? Because it's, it, for some people, it can be a little frightening, you know? People see this with, like, with, with lots of caution. I mean, um, how, how does one answer that? One way to, to answer that is to look for lessons in the past. Yeah. Lessons. Uh, so technology, technological developments are neither good nor bad. I mean, yeah. they are technological developments. Yeah. Uh, and then those technological developments, they fall in the hands of people who may use them for uh, more virtuous or less virtuous purposes. Uh, uh, is uh, atomic energy good or is it bad? Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, um, I think that we have that kind of uh, scenario. Uh, also, um, you have people who are technophobes and people who are technophiles. So yeah. sometimes, you know, those pre-existing biases will also shape uh, a little bit the, the opinions that people have on this. But um, I think that there are many, many um, uh, aspects in which th this technology, and not just chat GPT, but other, uh, you know, huge language models out there can be tremendously beneficial. Uh, the, uh, you know, one, one of the things that we do uh, is to try to find clues of brain health in how people speak. Yeah. Uh, that's one of, my, of our main lines of research. And, um, you know, we do this with different um, machine learning tools and natural language processing tools. Um, just a couple of days ago, the first paper came out where people used um, uh, uh, GPT uh, as the underlying language model to try to find patterns of that can discriminate between people with and without Alzheimer's disease. And uh, you know, they, they find a, a decent uh, um, level of classification in the order of 80%. 
not the best in the field, not the worst. But you know, there, there are such virtuous applications. When it comes to teaching, uh, something that we I think we will need to be mindful of is uh, uh, essays and mm -hmm. written assignments. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's going to be very, very hard to tell whether someone something has been produced uh, by an artificial intelligence, you know, or not. Um, especially because you say, well, I mean, if I'm giving my students a question, and uh, then what they do is they type that question on the uh, GPT platform, and they came up, that they, you know, they, they, they get the, the essay, maybe you can say, okay, so this is going to be very simple to spot, because what I'm going to do as a teacher is just type the question myself and see what comes out. <laughs> exactly. The thing is that uh, it, it, there are such easy turnaround, you know, workarounds to that. Uh, first of all, if you type the same question, you're not always going to get the same answer. No. Second, you can paraphrase the question if you're uh, smart enough as a student or come up with uh, little, you know, twists and turns to that question so that the output can actually be uh, very hard to track. Absolutely. Uh, and in any case, the real challenge for students sometimes is going to be um, once they have the output from GPT, um, how to make the grammar worse or, yeah. how, or how to make punctuation worse, you know, to make it believable. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think, uh, you know, th this is just like the new rendition of a question that has haunted uh, the, 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 the teaching uh, profession and many other professions, which is technology. Oh, so now uh, students have access to television. They can listen to English in their, in, in their homes. And it's going but to have an effect. Uh, <laughs> How's that going to affect what, what we do? What if they listen to a different, oh, they're not going to be listening to receive pronunciation now. Oh my yeah. God, no sacrilege. Uh, <laughs> or, uh, I don't know, maybe, oh, then the, the, the internet. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, now they have access to all these things. How are, are we going to, you know, come to terms with that? And, uh, okay, now it's GPT. Uh, I, I think that what really would be, I, 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 I do not know how to optimize the use of these technologies, but I do know one thing, that trying to turn a blind eye to that, yeah. pretend that it doesn't exist, yeah. uh, and sort of uh, trying to, uh, or trying to create lessons that prohibit, or they're in, in a way, you know, sort of create uh, a, a hard uh, boundary or prescription of, of that is going to be a very, very, very bad move. I mean, yeah. teaching should be about adapting to the new opportunities out there in the world rather than trying to uh, keep them at bay so yeah. that our comfort zones can be preserved. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I showed that to a friend of mine, Jack Warman, who uh, is a philosopher. And yeah, and, you know, it was funny because he was like, you know, can you please write a paper quoting two authors, you know, and talking about the, you know, the, the, this, this logic and yeah, present every, it was, it was perfect. You know, there were, he said like, there were some things that he could improve, but he said like, well, oh, this is like, this is going to be a challenge, you know, for, for teachers, how to present the information and let's say what students can do, because it would be, I mean, this is, would not be a good idea, you know, just to say, um, I mean, you cannot use this. No, it's actually the other way around. It's like how we can take this and actually have students learn from this, like using this tool. Absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, uh, Maybe this is the, the this is the I guess I'm a, a a very highly pessimistic person by nature, but here's the the, the optimist uh, uh, part of me sort of uh, uh, emerging now. Uh, 
oftentimes, you know, we think about um, uh, the, the role of, of teachers in terms of resources the teachers have at their disposal. So lesson plans, you know, are you going to be doing using this method or this method, this approach or this approach? Are you going to be incorporating technology this way or another? So synchronous classes or not, internet or not. And, you know, what, uh, what really, I think, as technologies evolve and many of the things that were resource-based in teaching are now at the disposal of anybody in their home, what this will really underscore and sort of place uh, the spotlight, spotlight on is going to be teachers. That's the one thing that technology will not be able to replace. The actual human being who's there, who's able, uh, who's able to come up with these highly spontaneous, on-the-fly, humorous responses, uh, the empathy of things, who can coordinate things. And um, I think that in so far as the massive abundance and uh, availability of technology, uh, outside from the specific toolkit that teachers can bring, to the uh, to, to the learning scenario uh, becomes so widespread, then we will be faced with uh, the need to revalue the human part of it. Absolutely. And that's the one thing that machines will not be able to do. They can emulate that, but machines will be machines by, by, by their very nature. So um, I hope that this sort of brings back uh, the focus on what you can do as an individual, as a human being, to turn that those 40 minutes, to your one advantage. and a half hours that you spend with people into something that is uh, neurocognitive, but, but, but mainly socially valuable and memorable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is like, we cannot just deny the access to technology and say, like, you cannot use this because, yeah, people are just, this is something that's going to be part of, it's part of our lives already. I mean, chat GPT has gotten a lot, a lot of attention. There are so many other models, but people have been playing with it. But yeah, of course, we cannot deny this, you know, that the, the influence of, of this, but also the human element still, like, for example, we've seen the same, you know, fears with automatic translation, you know, with, you know, Google Translate or, or, or I don't know, DeepL where you can translate things, but still it needs a human element there to to edit, check, and to revise that everything makes sense. The, the funny thing is that it, it, I, I, I can sort of see history repeating itself here. Yeah. So a new technology emerges, the first feeling is uh, concern, yeah. worry. Oh my God, what's going to happen now? I mean... It's just programmers gonna have any jobs, programmers or artists or teachers. <laughs> yeah, we 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 are, we are all we are we'll all be unemployed. Uh, yeah. We won't be able to to teach anymore. Our students are gonna teach are gonna cheat yeah. as much as they can. They're gonna just you know surrender their their morality <laughs> to this new technological tool. And then what happens is you know we have that little moment of of chaos and 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 and, and concern and despair. And then what happens is usually. Uh, a year later, that technology has become part and parcel of what we do. I mean, think about this. I mean, uh, you know, audio recorders, uh, they, they were not always there. You know, I, I don't remember the Garden of Eden being played with, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, discmans or, or, you know, things like that, right? Microphones. Uh, okay, so at the beginning, th th those things appear and it's, oh my God, how are we going to handle this? And, you know, and you handle that, you incorporate that. Books. I mean, books are technologies, you know, yeah, but and they are highly uh, um, 
human-based and driven uh, and biased technologies. And we take them so to be such an internal part of what, what we do that we no longer question, question them, right? Now, nobody would, would question now the use of uh, you know, online resources nowadays, right? If you did, people would call you, oh my God, you're so outdated, right? Well, I mean, give it time, you know, the moment of despair will pass and uh, this also will become um, uh, part of our daily toolkit because basically teaching has evolved by devising and incorporating technologies. It's what's always happened. Absolutely always. Uh, some things may not have changed that much, but uh, if you compare how lessons are being taught uh, right now in terms of the devices that are being used to how they were taught 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you okay. see that all the major changes, they don't really have much to do with what is taught, for what, for what purposes they are taught, but um, just with, 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 the, with the technologies that we've, Again, that we've used. So, you know, give it some time. It'll be fine. We'll survive. <laughs> yeah, we'll survive. We'll yeah. remain in the future. It's okay. Absolutely. And just to finish up, Alolfo, what resources and alternatives can you suggest for teachers and students and people who are just like watching or listening to the, this podcast, you know, a website, maybe an article or a book that you, you would say like, this is, you know, something that people would check if they would like to learn more about what you do. Oh, uh, so first, um, uh, if I had to suggest uh, literature for people who want to sort of become immersed in teaching uh, or, or rather to uh, see what uh, the contributions from cognitive neuroscience can be to, to teaching, um, there, there, there are a number of books, but there's one that I'm going to mention, which is uh, Reading in the Brain. Uh, it's been translated into Spanish by uh, Editorial Siglo XXI, um, in, in, at least in Argentina, uh, under the title of El Cerebro Lector. Um, this is a book by Stanislas Dehan, um, who's a leading neuroscientist, I mean, top-notch, but also a fantastic disseminator uh, and communicator of science. So if you want to learn about how your brain plays a role in this wonderful cultural uh, development that we humans uh, came up with, which is reading. Um, that would be my my go-to uh, book. Um, as to the things that that, that I do, uh, I guess it would be easier if people visited my uh, website. Absolutely. Um, Adolfo Garcia at dot uh, com dot ar. Argentina.com.ar, uh, and, and uh, I keep a highly updated uh, record of the different things that that we do. And I guess in general, uh, irrespective of who it is that you read, hopefully scientists, uh, um, it is altogether good for neuroscience to be part of the areas of interest uh, of uh, those of us in the in the teaching uh, world and in the uh, EFL teaching or, EL, or ELT world uh, in general, um, it would be absolutely wrong to say that neuroscience can provide answers to the questions that have been haunting us as educators absolutely. for centuries and millennia, but it would be just as wrong to believe that neuroscience is uh, less of a valuable contributor than philosophy, 
sociology, uh, sociology, psychology are. So let's let's put on an equal opportunity employer hat and uh, let's try to be critical, but also open to the contributions that even uh, the natural sciences can bring to this highly complex interpersonal, but also sociobiological uh, problem that we all care about, which is education and teaching. So yeah, thank you very much, Adolfo Garcia, for you know sharing your what what you do, your your research, your ideas. It's fascinating, you know, the the connection between the you know language and brain. Uh, of course, I'm going to be sharing your website, let's say, on our website, which is www.eltinchile.com. So I'm going to be sharing some of, of the uh, resources you you mentioned. So if people would like to check them out, it'll be I don't know excellent to for them to see. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at podcast at, at eltinchile.com. So I don't know if you have any closing remarks. Adolfo, thank you for your time and thank you for accepting my invitation. Just my gratitude. This is a great initiative. So uh, hats off uh, to you, Jose Luis. And uh, this is fantastic. Um, uh, keep, keep, keep doing this. We need these sorts of uh, outlets for uh, for all of us to be able to tell, to, 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 to share what we do, but what, what you mentioned right now, you know, I mean, to have channels of communication for people to keep, you know, bringing questions and sharing ideas or, 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 or queries, that is fantastic. We, we need more of that. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. No, thank you for your for your time. And of course, I, I usually have, you know, and, and this is something that let's say that you mentioned, uh, Adolfo, that people experts in the area, like there's a distance between, you know, what people do at universities and, you know, what, what people do, for example, at schools. And but uh, let's say in my experience, people, everybody like to share what they do. You know, everybody likes to to talk about what they do. And sometimes there is not like space for them to 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 do so besides like you see a book and you're like okay i'm going to read it but different let's say talking to the person who's written the book you know uh, 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 absolutely and you also sort of uh demystify uh yeah. That, that, yeah. that that person right i mean you see a name on a book and yeah. it's so impressive right and then you actually see the guy talk and you say hey i mean i can relate to this and you also realize that there's uh the only distance between someone who's published a book and you, if you haven't, is that that person has published the book. Yeah. I mean, there's, that, that, that's, that's all there is to it. So yeah. this, is, this is great. And I hope that there is some level of uh, inspiration and motivation for others to uh, take out what they do and what they know out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Alolfo. Till next time. Thank you.